You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. and uh, get started. I want to welcome everyone to our lecture this afternoon slash evening, depending on which time zone you are joining us from. My name is Sarah Phillips. I'm the director of the Robert F. Burns Russian and East European Institute at Indiana University Bloomington. And we are delighted to be co-hosting this lecture this evening. Um, from Dr. Catherine Ciancia from the Department of History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I uh, think this is a wonderful opportunity for us to bring our REEI and CRECA communities together for conversation. And um, we hope that this is the first of many such joint ventures in the future. I wanted to say a few words about how the event this evening will go. In just a minute, I'm going to turn it over to our distinguished colleague, Professor Fran Hirsch, who will introduce our speaker. And then after Dr. Ciancia's talk, we will open it up for question and answer, which I will be facilitating. And we invite you to offer your questions for Professor Ciancia in one of two ways. You can either simply type your question into the chat and I will relay that to her verbally, or um, if you would like to have a more interactive experience, you um, may indicate your wish in the chat to ask a question, thus forming a queue. And then we will invite you in that order to unmute yourselves and actually direct your question to Professor Ciancia. So I hope that made sense. Um, if you do have any questions, just throw them in the chat and we'll be happy to, uh, to answer those. And without any further ado, I uh, will hand it over to Professor Francine Hirsch, who is the Villas Distinguished Achievement Professor of History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Thank you very much. Well, it's my great pleasure to introduce Professor Catherine Ciancia, who received her PhD um, in history from Stanford in 2011, and who I've been fortunate to have as my colleague here at University of Wisconsin-Madison since 2013. Catherine is a truly innovative scholar whose research has been supported by the Mellon Foundation, DAAD, UW's Institute for Research in the Humanities, and other organizations. She's also a very popular teacher whose ability to connect with students has been recognized here with the Karen F. Johnson Teaching Award. She teaches a wide range of classes on Polish and modern European history, including World War II on the Eastern Front. And one of her most popular and most original classes is called Migration and Me, and blends genealogical and historical research. Catherine's work has appeared in Slavic Review and in the Journal of Modern History. And her new book, which is right on screen for us, um, and which she'll talk about today, it's called On Civilization's Edge, A Polish Borderland in the Interwar World. It was published by Oxford in 2020 and is an absolute tour de force. It is based on extensive archival research and on a rich reading of all kinds of different sources. It's beautifully written and it's highly evocative. And really while reading, one can just smell the unpleasant odors of the towns, feel one's boots getting stuck in the mud and experience just the frustration of getting lost on unnamed streets. Um, the book also makes a, a number of very powerful arguments about the possibilities and the perils of borders, about the importance of what she calls national uncertainty in the making of interwar Poland and about the role of second tier actors border guards, teachers, Boy Scouts, engineers, urban planners, public health officials, and others in carrying out the aims and the programs of the state. The book raises a number of very important questions that remain absolutely pressing to this day about the meaning of democracy and who gets to define it and about who gets labeled as a foreigner and why. Um, Catherine continues to ask important and interesting questions. She has recently embarked on a new project 
which is a transnational history about Polish consulates across the globe and the role that they played along with Polish citizens abroad in defining what it meant to be Polish. And um, so I just, I'm I just, again, just so pleased and I'm just grateful to have her as my colleague and I'm so happy to introduce her to you today. And so without further ado, let's just turn it over to her. Thanks. Well, thank you very much, Fran, for that really kind and generous and personal introduction. Um, and thank you to Krika for sponsoring this lecture um, and also to the Robert F. Burns Russian and East European Institute at Indiana University. Um, I'm really excited about the opportunity to say a little bit about the book. And of course, thank you everybody to, for, for joining. I can't see you all, but um, I see that there, there are many people here and I'm just so grateful uh, to all of you for joining in. Um, in the interests uh, or with the knowledge about Zoom fatigue, um, I'm going to speak for about 30 minutes um, and then I hope there'll be plenty of opportunity uh, for questions and conversation and I'm really looking forward to, to getting people's feedback and um, impressions about the book and the presentation. So I want to begin by talking about a photograph and this is the photograph on the front cover of my book. And one of the pleasures of getting to the end of a process of writing a book, apart from the, you know, the fact that you've finally finished after all of the years work that you put into it, is, is choosing what the front cover is going to look like. And so I want to say a little bit about the, the picture from the front cover, um, not least because I like the, I like the picture so much, uh, but also because I think there's, there's a, a deeper meaning to this picture in terms of what exactly I'm doing in the book and perhaps what we're all doing um, when we work as historians. So I'll show you the picture. Um, this is obviously the picture as it appeared on the book. And this is the original picture. So this is the picture that I, I picked out and there were several candidates and, and I want to say why I chose this one. Before I say um, what exactly is happening here um, in some detail, I want to just point out several things about this picture and what we see. So we see a family. We see probably the husband and the wife on either side, grandma in the middle, the toddler sitting on the lap and the dog, of course. We see them sitting in front of their, their house with its thatch roof and its, its wooden um, sides. Um, and we see them looking pretty comfortably uh, toward the camera. There are slight smiles on their faces. Um, we do see, of course, that the toddler's face is blurred as is that of the dog. Um, and as someone who has both a toddler and a dog, um, I can say that this really captures the kind of <laughs> reality uh, about having both of these um, two creatures in your household. Um, one of the things that we might also notice is a kind of combination of the modern, maybe even the urban and the rural here. Um, the women have modern shoes on, the woman's sweater is pretty modern, um, as are the man's clothes, but the handkerchiefs that the women have on their, their heads lends it a, a kind of rural aesthetic as well. So apart from just being a photo that is intriguing and is in some ways kind of attractive, uh, why did I think that this photo did some work for me in terms of the analysis that I offer in the book? Well, there's a duality in my work. On the one hand, and as Fran um, so sort of beautifully put it, the book really tries to take the reader by the hand and lead them through a place that they cannot literally visit. And this is the case of the work that we do as historians more broadly. We try and communicate the character of a place and time that we cannot literally visit. On the other hand, however, I am very conscious that my sources frame this place in a very particular way. This is a literal framing in the case of the photograph, but more broadly, all of my sources, the written, uh, the textual, um, along with the visual, frame the area and its people and its environments for an imagined audience. And in the case of the framing, this also means thinking comparatively. And one thing that actually strikes me about this photograph and maybe strikes some of you as well, is that it is once a snapshot into a very particular place and also something of a modern trope an idealization of a civilized nuclear family and that family's clean and well-run homestead. There is not much actually that grounds this in Poland and the spoiler, this is Poland, this is a talk about Poland, so it is Poland. Um, but I don't think there's anything here that really marks it out as particularly Polish. So what does the photo mean in its historical context? What is it doing? How should we read it? Well, let's start by asking a really basic question. Who are these people? Where are they? What are they doing here? Well, what we have here is a picture of a Polish military settler who is the man uh, that you see here on the right-hand side. The photograph was taken by a military photographer in August, 1924, so it's around 100 years old. Um, and it was taken in a military settlement in the Eastern borderlands of interwar Poland. 
They were here because the man had fought for the fledgling Polish army against Bolshevik Russia in the war of 1919 to 1920, one of several wars that erupt as the continental empires collapse and new nation states uh, make their mark on the continent of Europe. As the fighting raged on, the Polish government in Warsaw had offered these men plots of land in the eastern borderlands as kind of a reward for their service for when the war was over. And along with thousands of other men, this man had taken the government up on its offer in the early 1920s. And while veterans of this war moved to settlements across eastern Poland, this particular settlement was located in the region of Volinia. And this was the region that had the largest single number of military settlers. Now, Volinia is the Polish borderland of my book. And here we have a couple of maps that show both where this was in Poland and also a kind of zoom in on this region in 1930. So uh, you can see on the left-hand side um, where Volinia is, is situated. It is one of 16 um, administrative provinces that made up interwar Poland. And on the right, we can see various rivers that flowed through the region. We can see the administrative borders between the counties. And we can also see some of the major towns. And these towns are these are definitely not cities. These are very much towns. Um, they're really, even the largest ones have the populations in the tens of thousands. So these are not major towns. This is really a rural um, area. Now, like many regions in Eastern Europe, Volinia was a classic borderland. It was a place where borders had ebbed and flowed over time as states moved in and then retreated. Volinia had lent its name to a, a medieval principality, a province in the early modern Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, and after the late 18th century partitions of that state, a governorate of the Russian Empire. It's kind of tricky to keep track of, of all the different states and, and principalities that this region had been part of. Now, at the end of the First World War, as I mentioned, Russian imperial power imploded in Volinia. And once again, it became a battleground as a dizzying array of forces, including the Bolshevik Red Army, the Imperial White Army, short-lived iterations of an embryonic Ukrainian state, and of course, the new Polish state fought for control. And as I mentioned, the military satellite that we saw was involved in, in these uh, conflicts. Ultimately, much, although not all of the area that had historically been considered Volinia was absorbed into the Polish state. And its population, which reached around 2 million people um, in 1931 on, the, on that set, the second census, lived primarily in the countryside. And as I said, if you look at the towns here, you can see that most of them are really pro um, popped up um, along the banks of the province's many rivers. So what was Volinia like? Well, geographically, it was divided between two uh, distinct areas. So the area of Northern Volinia was made up of forested areas. It was very marshy. Um, it's basically the area that today straddles the border between Ukraine um, and Belarus. Um, and the Southern areas, which you see here on the left were much more sort of gently undulating hills. The, the soil, the agricultural soils were much richer here. But overall, it was a very poor province and one that Poles looked at, as we will learn, with a mixture of nostalgia and dismay. Much of the land remained undrained, transportation networks were sparse, literacy rates were low. But if at first glance, Volinia's status as a poor backwater suggests its lack of importance for historical study, the idea that this is a place that history never quite got to, or maybe a place that was sort of dragged into, um, into the modern world uh, by historical forces kind of kicking and screaming, um, my book actually argues the opposite. In fact, it is precisely its perceived marginality, its backwater quality, its provincialness, that make it a critical location for understanding how ideas of backwardness and civilization themselves were constructed and framed in the first place. And these were global questions too. They weren't questions that were just limited to this one particular place. Like the other successor states of Eastern Europe that emerged at the end of the First World War, Poland occupied a rather precarious position within global hierarchies of civilization. Some areas of the world seem to be living in the present moment, hurtling toward the future, while others lack woefully behind, struggling to keep up. Poles, by virtue of being European, were considered to be more civilized than many peoples who lived around the world, particularly in colonial contexts. And yet at the same time, for historical and cultural reasons, they were themselves seen as less civilized than their Western European counterparts. To put it another way, Volinia 
was a backwater of Poland, but for many, Poland was a backwater of Europe. And as such, Volinia may have been a place that elicited feelings of anxiety and dismay and disgust among Poles, but it was also one that provided opportunities for Poles to prove their civilizational credentials at home and abroad once and for all. Now, what gives this story particular resonance, however, is that these questions about backwardness and civilization became intimately entangled with another set of global questions about which nations got to rule which other nations. And this, of course, was one of the major questions um, of the interwar period. After all, while the linear was part of a Polish state, its ethnically Polish population remained in a minority, in a pretty small minority at that. According to the 1931 census, only 17%, 17% of the population here was categorized as Poles. And in the 1931 census, they're using the idea of mother tongue. So this was the criterion for nationality. Only 17% were Polish. Ukrainian speakers, usually Orthodox Christians, usually living in the countryside, uh, made up 68%. Jews speaking Yiddish or more rarely Hebrew, usually living in those small towns that I mentioned were about 10%. There are also Czechs, Germans, and Russian speakers as well. Now, understandably, the story of a place like Volinia has therefore traditionally been told within the framework of the nationality question, right? Was Poland good or bad for its national minorities? What were relations like between different national groups on the ground? And the problem has been that in trying to answer those questions, historians have naturally looked at sources that obviously answer questions like that. They have looked at laws, constitutions, political tracts or reports that have sections on different national minorities. These are the kind of the, this is sort of the path of least resistance, right? If you want to think about national minorities, you go to questions that have been created about the national minority questions. But what struck me as I began to read about Volinia as broadly as I could, and not just looking for things about nationality, was that there was actually less talk about national minorities per se as some kind of independent issue and much more about the ways in which civilizational levels of different populations served as ways to talk about national groups, including local Poles. And my most exciting sources were therefore not the ones that were produced in Warsaw in answer to questions about nationality filed in the archives explicitly under nationality, but they were things like local newspaper articles, public health reports, minutes of local meetings, and as you saw a few moments ago, photographic collections. And these allowed me to get at this question of nationalities, which of course is very important for my work, not so much head on as from the side. And in doing so, I think it opened up a whole series of, of really interesting um, connections that perhaps had been missing from the, the work that had been published previously. So who were the, the, the Poles who created the sources that I'm looking at? Um, well, in some ways it's easy to say who they aren't, so as I said, they are not really the politicians in Warsaw who are sort of distant physically and in some ways psychologically from this region. But this is also not a book about ordinary people on the ground. It is about the people in between. And as Fran mentioned, um, I refer to these people in the book as my second tier actors. Um, so this is an sort of umbrella that encapsulates all of these, dif these different people. This is not a homogenous group by any means. They are doing different things. They have different occupations. They have different educational levels. So there is no sense here that these people are all doing the same thing. And actually a lot of the really exciting parts of the, the, the book, at least from my perspective, come from um, the ways in which these people are interacting with one another and sometimes clashing with one another as well. So to give you a, a flavor of who these people are, well, they include uh, some of the groups that you see here. So up here um, in the top right, we have um, border guards. Um, the, as you saw in the map, hopefully, uh, Volinia was along Poland's border with the Soviet Union. Um, so a very, a very difficult border to police for various reasons. Um, and you see here, these are sort of local people standing with the border guards outside one of these border posts, which has been uh, located um, on, this, on this frontier. And these people, they're not only there to police the border, to stop peasants kind of trading on the other side or visiting family or, you know, crossing a border that actually was pretty easy to cross, especially in the 1920s. But they are also there to walk around the village with people, tell them, um, you know, how to how to farm, for instance. You know, many of these uh, border guards are, of, um, are from peasant families in Western Poland. And, you know, they have this idea that they are there to, to educate people in farming techniques and so on. So their, their, their role is much more capacious than just simply um, 
making sure that the border is secure. We also have um, boy and girl scouts um, here. Obviously, this, this is a, uh, these are girl scouts here. Um, and many of these uh, boy and girl scouts from elsewhere in Poland went to the border in the summer and they spent sometimes six, seven weeks there camping, um, often um, in places very close to the, these border guard outposts. And this is a really interesting set of sources that I looked at. Uh, military settlers who, just to go back to the photo that I, I showed at the beginning, um, these people were there to set up kind of model rural communities for local people to show them how, you know, what a village could actually look like. Um, and also academics and experts, a couple of whom you see up here. Um, and then finally on this picture um, is a, a group of philanthropists. These are people from Poznan in Western Poland, and they have collected books and they are sending them in these wooden crates emblazoned with the Polish eagle out east to their sort of less civilized uh, compatriots in the East. The group also includes many people who aren't shown here, engineers who develop sewage systems for the towns, public health workers who tried to teach villages, often in vain, to quarantine when they became ill with infectious diseases. And of course, this is a part of the book whose resonance I could not have imagined when I wrote it elementary school teachers, whose job it was not only to create literate citizens, but to create citizens who knew when to wash their hands. So a lot of this is really bound up with progressive ideas about hygiene and education. And as such, they're not primarily thinking about civilization in terms of lofty appeals to high culture, but this is civilization with a small c. It is civilization as it exists on the level of everyday life. It is civilization that can be spotted in the ways in which people live, their customs, their conditions, what their houses look like, how they smell, and even, and this is something that, that came up um, in some of the, the reports, how many times they change their underwear. It, just, it all sounds sort of amusing, but these things, as much as anything else, are believed to be the key to making the province more governable by creating proper, hygienic, modern citizens, and also proving that despite their minority status, Poles are the only group that are capable of civilizing the region. And what I found most interesting is the fact that this was never a straightforward process. These people do not always agree with one another. They fight among themselves, sometimes clashing with each other, sometimes clashing with local Poles or so the Polish speaking populations who live on the ground. They're supposed to be um, of the same national group, but often there are tensions there as well. And their attitudes are complicated and they change over the course of the 20 years that I'm looking at in the book. People often fluctuated between thinking of the region as disgusting and thinking of it as beautiful. They think about it in some ways as lost for good and as redeemable. They think about the ways it is mired in some kind of eternal backwardness. Or they think about it as experiencing modernization too quickly. And sometimes they think about it becoming less Polish and at other times as becoming a much more integrated part of the nation state. So this is a very complicated story. And what I, again, what I found most exciting about the research are the kind of tensions in the story, as opposed to the idea that it all went very smoothly. So I can't obviously summarize everything about the book in this short talk. So what I want to do um, is really just to say a few words about how um, some of these second tier actors married ideas of civilizational and de uh, development and Polishness here between the late 1920s and the mid 1930s. This is the middle period of the book. So the book kind of progresses chronologically. And I just want to give a few examples um, of my sources and my arguments from that part of the book. And what is so interesting to me about this part of the book is that it focuses on a time period that historians have tended to think of as, as one of a more inclusive vision of the Polish nation. So the, the periodization is, you know, the early 1920s, you have sort of right-wing Polish nationalism. Then from the mid-1920s, mid to late 1920s to the mid-1930s, you have a much more inclusive vision, and then it kind of swings back to right-wing nationalism in the late 19, uh, mid to late 1930s. And so I really find this, this idea of inclusive nationalism very interesting. It's often used as a shorthand and juxtaposed against the radical uh, right-wing exclusive nationalism. But what I try and show in the book is that inclusiveness is also a construct and it also has uh, limits. Indeed, it wasn't really um, about um, inclusivity at all. It was much more about where the limits of that inclusion lie and even inclusiveness has its uh, limits. This was a story then about Polish civilization Polish benevolence and Polish tolerance. It's about these groups, but it's also about the ways um, in which Jews and Ukrainians in particular are written into particular stories about Polishness. 
So let's start with Ukrainians and then I'll talk a little bit about Jews. And one thing I want to emphasize here is that both Ukrainians and Jews are being written into narratives of civilization in ways that are not exactly the same, but actually have some major similarities. So if we look at Ukrainians uh, to begin with, the Polish Second Tier actors depict Ukrainians as backward much of the time. It's a really it's sort of a recurring trope that you see. And in particular, they think about the ways in which um, Ukrainians who are, who are almost exclusively peasant populations are trapped in a kind of cyclical relationship with their environment. So the logic goes like this. These people live in kind of muddy and swampy conditions and therefore are apathetic. They kind of, they are produced by that landscape. But then the apathetic people continue to live in muddy and swampy conditions. So there's this idea that they kind of reinforce the environment in which they live and the Polish state has to come in and somehow educate these people, change these people, drain the land, show them the advantages of, of draining land and so on. And to give you a, a, an example of this, so this is a, this is a picture from 1934 um, and it comes from the Illustrated Daily Courier, uh, a newspaper that is based in Kraków um, in Southern Poland. And in, in many ways, this, this image sort of stands for many of the different sources that I looked at in my research. Um, and it gives you a sense, I think, of how uh, many uh, Ukrainian speaking Orthodox populations were depicted. You find these kinds of ideas in, in multiple sources. Um, in some of my border guard uh, sources from the early to mid 1930s, for instance, you have them writing about how disgusting it is that animals are living in the houses with people. Um, and there's also another source that I looked at that um, is a Polish school teacher uh, talking about uh, Volinia. Um, and he says, you know, there's a joke among the Polish people in this region that the air is so clean because the peasants never open their windows, right? So it's a joke about both, you know, the peasants living in poorly ventilated houses, but also, you know, imagining how bad the smell would be if they ever did um, open the windows. So this, in the sense, is no anomaly. This is sort of representative in many ways of, of a lot of those tropes. And what I want to do is just to pair it with the image that I use on the front cover of the book of the military settlers. So on one level, these two pictures um, have some similarities, right? They're both depictions of people out situated outside of places that we can assume are the places where they live. Um, but in many ways, in fact, in most ways, the pictures are kind of polar opposites of one another. And what we can find in each picture, I think, is a kind of visual counterpoint to the other. It's almost as though every symbol is sort of matched here by its antithesis. So we see pained windows here to the unpained window here, um, a ramshackle house um, of logs here compared to these sort of neatly regularly cut uh, pieces of wood that you see here. Mud on the ground here, the idea that this region has not been drained properly of the, of the water uh, that is logging it. Whereas over here we have, you know, this is sort of an area that looks much drier the dirty apron to the impossibly clean apron on the woman in, in the middle here. The traditional boots laced up the leg that you see here versus the more modern shoes here. And also note the body language. The woman here looks very uncomfortable in her environment compared to the more composed um, um, body language of the people, the military settlers that you see here um, on the, the left-hand side. The other thing I think to note here, which is important is that the woman is alone. There's no sense of the family for which she is probably providing. And moreover, when we think back to the caption that went with this photo in the newspaper, it was a poor Valinian hut in Sarnie County. So the woman is even erased uh, from the photograph's caption itself. Um, and I can say if, if in the Q&A, we can talk a little bit more about gender, but I think that the, the, the depiction of women here, specifically as women, is, is important. But these photographs have to exist side by side. One sort of reinforces the other. The Polish photograph reinforces the Ukrainian photograph and vice versa. At the same time, however, as these, this photograph existed, we can also see how many of the second tier actors simultaneously valorize a particular version of local Ukrainian identity. They constructed an acceptable version of Ukrainianness as a counterpoint to the one that you see here. And again, we can look at some visual imagery to, to illustrate what I mean here. So the picture on the right-hand side here um, is from the Valinian Provincial Museum, which was opened um, in 1929. And it was part of this regionalist project, this attempt to try and prove that Valinia made sense as a region and that, it, that its diversity was something to be celebrated. So you can see here that the 
costumes, sort of traditional folklore costumes, traditional pictures of peasants on the walls. And then these are um, traditionally dyed um, eggs that you see here as well. So this sort of depiction of a very stylized version of Ukrainian identity, kind of sanitized, cleaned up version of what it could mean to be Ukrainian. And similarly, um, on the left-hand side, this comes from a Polish um, tourist map to the region. Um, tourism never really boomed here. Um, you know, it, it, Volinia doesn't really have uh, the attributes that one would associate with a, a tourist center. There are no mountains here as there are in Southern Poland. There's no access to the sea as there is um, on the Baltic coast. Um, but there were efforts to try and create a tourist movement here. And what I think is so striking here is the way in which um, the modern transportation networks, so, you know, the um, train tracks and the modern roads connecting all of these different places are juxtaposed against these images. Again, a very sanitized version of local culture, peasants in these traditional clothes, but very different from the peasant woman that we saw on the previous um, photograph. So what it shows, I think, is that Ukra Ukrainians can be part of this project. It is inclusive on one level, but only if they are sanitized, stripped of the un attractive qualities of their backwardness, which we saw in the previous photograph, and replaced by the positive qualities of exoticism. Now, this approach is also reflected in the way that these Polish actors talk about Valinian Jews. And this is, I think, one of the really um, interesting um, takeaways from the book is that Ukrainians and Jews, while seen in some ways as very different, and I can again talk about those differences, um, they, they become very apparent in the, in the late 1930s, but in some ways they can be both, they can both be written into this idea about being both uncivilized on one level and then being admitted into the, the Polish national project once they are cleaned up and once they are, they are positioned um, in this much more sort of civilized framework. So by the late 1920s, the more inclusive nationalists um, who had this really important role in Volinia uh, by this point, rail against right-wing anti-Semitism. So they, they really position themselves as against um, the, the right-wing uh, nationalists, the exclusive nationalists. They think this is the wrong thing to do. And so often, you know, in the towns, they'll talk about the importance of there being a Jewish representative, an Ukrainian representative, and a Polish representative, um, and so on. But what is so striking once you kind of get past that is that they simultaneously agree with one another that the Polish towns where the vast majority of the lineage Jews live need to be what they call de-Jewified. And this was based on the idea that the Jews, like the Ukrainians, were less civilized than the Poles. These are a couple of pictures, uh, again, thinking about the framing as opposed to simply the content of these pictures. Um, of these towns. And as I said, these towns are relatively small. They measure in the maximum sort of in the tens of thousands or usually actually only in the thousands. Um, and um, the Polish authorities and these second tier actors really look at these places and they, they, they basically complain about every aspect of these towns. They complain about the fact that there are animals in the towns. They complain about the, the level of housing in the towns. They complain about the smells of the towns. They complain that people don't use the toilets even when they're told that that's something that they have to do. Um, they, they really see every aspect of these places as dysfunctional. People say they can't reach their apartments because of the, they have to put galoshes on to get to their apartments because of the, how much mud there is. So there's a sense that some of this is sort of hyperbolic, but they really do see these places as having these deep structural problems. And they argue that part of the problem is that Jews run the towns. They often have a majority on the town councils. And, and they argue that, that Jews simply do not know how to run modern towns, that they are themselves sort of inherently uh, backward. And this is why these more modernizing projects are not undertaken. So the reason why there's no water supply system and people are getting sick from infectious diseases is the fault of the Jews. Or the reason why the town smells so bad is because there is no proper uh, sewage system. And these sentiments translate into policies by which Polish officials remove Jews from town councils, expand urban boundaries to include Christian populations on the outskirts of the towns to try and change the demographic balance of these places. And they even build what they call colonies for Poles that would represent a vision of a civilized European version of modernity in the midst of Jewish space. And just to show you, this is from, um, this is from the mid 1920s, uh, but these are architectural plans for one of these colonies. Now there's a, there's a shortage of housing in these in these towns for state officials. And so 
you know, they want to build these houses. But I think the way they talk about these colonies is really important because it provides a kind of counterpoint to what they see as, uh, as Jewish urban space. So this is based on the garden city movement of urban development in Europe, the designs for the colony um, try and combine the best of the urban and the best of the rural. Um, they feature signs of urban civilization that they believe Jewish run towns lack, running water, sewage system, tree lined streets and regularly built houses with backyards. And one thing you might notice here is there's a kind of pattern to all of these houses, there's a kind of uniformity here. And they contrast that with the kind of ramshackle ways in which they argue these towns have developed. Now, at the same time, however, these same people who thought about Jews as dirty and backward and uncivilized also try, as they did with the Ukrainians, to fetishize a particular idea of Jewishness that they believe is acceptable one that can be accommodated within Polish nationalism in the way that it cannot for the radical right, and even can be promoted in a certain village of the re uh, certain vision of the region. And again, I want to argue that in some ways, this is not about Jews or Ukrainians. It's really about the ways in which Poles are constituting themselves and their sense of Polishness by juxtaposing it against these other visions or speaking about their ability as Poles, as kind of benevolent, tolerant Poles to include this acceptable version um, into their national vision. And just one way in which this happens, and I'm certainly happy to talk about other ways in which this happens, but in the interest of time, just, just to give one example, um, are the ways in which they talk about synagogues. And they're not talking here about Jewish populations, they're talking about buildings, and they're talking about the ways in which um, the design of these buildings can somehow complement this broader vision of Polish inclusivity. Often, if you read these uh, guidebooks to the region, you'll see that, that they sometimes mention the synagogues in, in these small towns as very attractive, you know, beautiful monuments uh, to the town, really worth visiting. Um, they often focus um, on synagogues that are made of, of stone rather than those that are made of wood. So there's sort of a focus on particular types of synagogue. And the one that you can see here is the great synagogue in Wutsk. As I mentioned, Wutsk is the provincial capital. Um, and this one had been constructed originally in the early part of the 17th century. And what they emphasize here are two things. Um, the first is, and, and you find this in some of the regional uh, magazines, is that they emphasize how this synagogue fits into the town. In many cases, and as, as Fran mentioned at the beginning, when we're thinking about ideas of foreignness, Jews are seen as fundamentally foreign to the region, that they are not native populations in the way that Poles and even Ukrainians are. But this allows them to be from the region. It allows there to be an idea that Jews are rooted here. As I said, this goes back to the early 17th century. So it's this idea that, that there's been sort of a long history of Polish Jewish um, coexistence. And the other thing that comes from this, because it goes back so far into, into Polish history, is that it becomes a kind of way of talking about Polish benevolence and tolerance. And one thing to think about the concept of tolerance is, is that it is not necessarily always a, a purely positive thing. Right? Tolerance implies that you can, you can stand something that perhaps you don't have to uh, stand, perhaps something that you don't like very much. And I think we certainly see that here. So what can we conclude from some of these observations? And again, in the, in the Q&A, I'm really happy to go into any of this in more detail or um, answer some broader questions about the book and its implications. So the first thing I'm trying to do here is to globalize the history of Poland. And while the more obvious way of doing this is to focus on Poles uh, you know, who live outside of the borders of Poland, and that's what I'll be doing actually with the, the next project, um, I actually think we can globalize Polish history if we think about it in particular ways, even when the, the material that we're looking at is very local. So I'm arguing here that this is operating within a much broader global set of questions, questions about who gets to rule whom, questions about civilization, um, questions about um, you know, the ways in which nationalism and civilization go together. And these are, are questions that are being asked across the world at this point. And Poles are not doing something separate, but they're actually part of that broader set of processes. At the same time, the book is also very much a local framing. And part of the challenge of the book is to think about how local and global go together. My second three actors are taking these global concepts, but they are using them in ways that make sense in that locality. And some of the terms that I think about here are, you know, democracy, um, civilization, uh, backwardness, all of these things mean something different here than they do elsewhere. So the global and the local um, somehow brought together. 
Uh, the second thing that I want to think about are the limits of inclusion. And this is something that I mentioned a few moments ago. So Polish historiography has sometimes labeled uh, one version of Polish nationalism as inclusive and another as exclusive. And what I'm trying to do by looking again, sort of sideways at these questions is to think about how those two terms are wholly inadequate. That it is perfectly true that right-wing Polish um, nationalism excluded more people. But I think the problem is when we then use inclusive to deal with the other side, we have to think much more concretely about in any given moment and in any given locality, who is being included and on what terms. And finally, and perhaps this is a good time to uh, go back to that initial picture from the, the front of the book, um, I'm really arguing that the most important dynamics here are not so much in relations between different national groups. And this analytical framework, I think, in some ways assumes that these groups sort of existed out there in the world to be studied and interacted with one another on those terms. But rather, this is really a story about how a particular group of self-declared Poles, my second tier actors, constructed ideas about what it meant to be Polish and civilized alongside one another simultaneously in a region that they saw as having neither of these things, being neither fully Polish nor fully civilized. And so my, my story then really isn't about Ukrainians and Jews per se, it is really about the ways in which they are framed, the ways in which Poles also frame themselves through the process of framing others. And this again, I think brings us back to this picture. So if my book then provides a window into this world, and I do want to take you down to these streets and to the, the experiences of living in this place, because it, it is for many of us a wholly sort of strange um, experience, to come back to this initial uh, analogy, I also really want to, to take the framing around that window um, very seriously too. So thank you. Um, I look forward to your questions um, and um, I'm excited about the discussion. Wow, thank you so much, Professor Siancia, for a really rich, very provocative uh, presentation. I, for one, am really looking forward to delving into your book now. So thank you so much for hitting the highlights for us. And we do look forward to uh, questions from audience members. If you would like to uh, pose a question yourself to just you know unmute and go ahead and ask your question, uh, let's form a queue if we can, if you could just drop a note in the chat that you have a question and then we can kind of follow that order. And I will keep my eye out on the chat. Okay, so uh, Natalia Alexiun, please unmute yourself and go ahead with your question. Thank you so much and thank you for this. Um, a fascinating talk and I'm also looking forward to reading uh, reading the book. I, I have a number of questions, but I will um, stick to three. Uh, so one is the, the question of, they all in a way are a question of dialogue in, in, in the book. Um, is the, are there ways in which your second tier actors engage with um, second tier local actors that uh, of the of the groups that are to be civilized um, um, especially uh, um, Jews and Ukrainians and if so uh, do you see any change or any reshaping of ideas through these uh, encounters and do you do you include in a book uh, what um, Volinian Jews and Volinian uh, Ukrainians think of that project and of themselves living in this not fully Polish and not fully civilized uh, region. Uh, then the second question has to do with modernity, um, urbanity, rurality, and all this back backwardness and uh, civilization. Um, when you started your talk, you, you contrasted the modernity of the shoes and the, and the clothes with the rural setting of this beautiful uh, picture on the cover. So I wonder if this project of civilizing is ultimately a project of urbanization or does it have um, sort of two uh, sets 
of ideas, one for remaking the rural and one for remaking the, uh, the urban. And then the third question, uh, it's fascinating the, the story of the synagogues because uh, Sam Caso and, and others who worked on guidebooks from other areas actually show how Jewish um, historical sites are omitted from those guidebooks. Uh, so this is definitely something um, seems to be different. And I wonder to what extent this is the kind of material culture that is okay, uh, right? You can have Ukrainians um, drone and their lovely clothes in the museum, and then you can have a synagogue, historical synagogue, but this is not about actual people. Or am I missing something? Uh, but thank you very much. And I'm looking forward to um, more discussions and to reading the book. Thank you, Natalia. It's so nice to see your face. I feel like this is like the one really nice thing about this, this format is that I get to see people I haven't seen for a really long time. So thank you for your questions. Um, I'll try and answer them relatively briefly just to make sure that we, and we can always talk to each other um, on another occasion about these. So um, I'll take the question about um, modernity, the, the middle question first, because I actually think that's probably the one that I have most to say about. You know, is there a kind of rural version of this and an urban version of this? Um, and I think that, that there are. Um, the chapters actually in the middle of the book are constructed around those two ideas. So the idea about the urban and idea about the rural. Um, and one thing that I try and do is to, rather than just talk about villages and towns, to talk about the construction of the rural and the construction of the urban. Like what does it mean to be urban, right? So, so absolutely, I think these are, these are projects that on some level, these second tier actors are thinking of separately. Now it's not, the complication I think comes with the idea for instance, of, of, of modernity. So the reason that the book is, is, is about civilization as opposed to modernity is that the Polish um, actors that I'm looking at have a really difficult relationship with the idea of modernity. So they want a certain version of modernity and they see that in, if, if we think about the towns, for instance, you know, paved streets, um, sewage systems, water supply systems, they're basically thinking a lot about hygiene and governability here. But they also see towns as really problematic bastions of modernity because they're Jewish and because they think, well, we don't actually want the countryside to look exactly like the town because we, we have this problem with the towns being Jewish. Um, you know, another aspect of this is that they, while they think of this region as backward, they are very concerned that, that modernity is making inroads here, but it's not the right kind of modernity. So for here, they're thinking about things like, you know, ideas of, you know, Bolshevism coming into the region, ideas of Ukrainian nationalism coming into the region, you know, that these are, this is modernity, also religious sects they're very concerned about, right, that people bring these kind of wacky ideas about the end of the world, and they're, they're sort of spreading them within these communities. So they think of these communities as very, especially the peasants, as very kind of vulnerable to the wrong kind of modernity, and they don't want that to happen. So they're simultaneously sort of protecting them from the wrong kind of modernity and trying to bring their Polish version. And that's why civilization makes more sense because it's a more capacious term. It can harken back to a particular vision of the past as well as look to the future. And again, part of what I'm looking at in, in the book are the, the various ways in which what civilization means in any given context. And so it's not so much about modernization or modernity as much as a particular version of that. Um, in relation to the question about synagogues, I think I actually agree that it's not that all synagogues and Jewish spaces are mentioned. It's a very kind of curated um, version of Jewishness. So for instance, the great synagogue in what's that I showed you, like this is the one that gets all the attention. They're not mapping other areas, um, other you know Jewish prayer houses here, for instance. It's really that one because that one does work for them in terms of a narrative about Polish tolerance. The other ones don't, so they're left out. So yes, it's not so much, um, it gets back to this idea of inclusion. It's not so much everything is included. It's just the ones that are included that allow them to tell a story about Polishness rather than, than all of those places. So I I actually don't think it's it's actually not a, a contrast with the with the work that you that you mentioned and the other question the first question that you asked about the relationship between um you know second tier actors if you like who represent these other these other groups here i wouldn't necessarily refer to those people as second tier actors because the point of the second tier actors is that they're representing the state either in some kind of official or unofficial capacity um, but they do work with, um, you know, for instance, Jewish leaders in some of these towns. But again, it seems to me only in sort of acceptable ways. So they'll say, oh, we want a Jewish representative here to come when the Polish president visits, visit, so we have this Jewish representative here. But that's not quite the same as 
um, allowing sort of equal participation in real life decisions that are being made about the town. So it seems to me a lot of it's kind of ceremonial um, window dressing in a sense, and it's, it's not, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're willing to allow real power to, to some of these other groups. Thanks. Great, uh, we have a, quest a question from our colleague, Matthew Green from uh, UW-Madison's Department of German, Nordic and Slavic Studies. He's interested about the role of education in the region. He says, uh, I'm assuming Polish would have been the language of tuition. Did education become a way of quote unquote sanitizing children? And he continues with this, I'm thinking about how this geographical area sees the collision of the Latin, Cyrillic and Hebrew alphabets. So even the visuality of language, not just which is spoken becomes political and key in education. That's a really interesting, really interesting question. Um, so, you know, most of the schools, there, there are, there, there's a law in 1924 um, in, in uh, this region in terms of, it's supposed to create bilingual schools, but actually really it just creates uh, Polish schools and you know with Polish being used as a language of instruction uh, when this more inclusive version of, of Polish nationalism takes hold in the late 1920s uh, there are you know again sort of gestures toward having Ukrainian in the classroom and, and allowing students to learn that and even teachers being encouraged to learn Ukrainian even if they're Polish to create some kind of exchange so the idea so it, it, in other words it's not the same throughout the entire period and then in the later uh, period that I'm looking at you have this real clampdown on Ukrainian nationalism that sort of all Ukrainian nationalism um, is bad. Um, you know, I really look primarily at, at elementary schools rather than secondary schools. Um, there's no university here. So, you know, we're thinking about education. It's, it's sort of operating on these different levels. Um, but actually, the, the, the main focus in terms of schools is not so much on, on language in terms of what I'm putting in the book, um, or even, you know, the kind of subjects that are being taught, but much more about school as a civilizing institution for children to learn how to become citizens. Um, so, you know, as I said, they're really, they're really worried about things like, you know, that the children kind of turn up without shoes on, or the children, um, you know, they don't know how to wash their hands, or that they, they need conditioning um, in a way that is sort of, on one level sort of transcends their national identity, but on another is allowing them to become pro proper Polish citizens. Um, so there are there are private schools here um, that have language in different um, in different uh, sorry um, instruction in different languages. Um, you know, there's also there are a couple of Russian language schools that continue to exist here, and, and there are sort of anxieties among some Poles about you know allowing the Russian language to continue. There's some you know the, the Poles go in here in the um, in the late 1920s, and they find that you know some school textbooks are still the old Russian imperial textbooks that they're using. So, so language does it, it is important here, um, both in terms of the different ethnic groups that live here, but also in the sense that you know using textbooks from the Russian imperial period sort of implies that there are these imperial legacies um, even once the state has become part of Poland. So it's sort of a, it, it's a it's a question that works on on many different levels. But as I said, I'm really focusing here less on language instruction and much more on what schools do beyond just um, education in that very sort of traditional sense. Thank you. Michael Goodman wanted to ask a question. Please go ahead. Yeah, uh, thank you. Yeah, I made the uh, humorous comment in the chat that the irony is that it's, basically, it's often stamp collectors that are the most familiar with, with what you describe as this um, somewhat tricky pattern of layout of a lot of these uh, short-lived uh, countries because most of them uh, issued their own stamps. And that's one way that the uh, memory of these locations is preserved uh, in their stamps. Uh, my question was this, um, was this lack in Volhynia of, uh, of infrastructure and uh, sanitation, was this significantly uh, worse there than in other areas of uh, interwar Poland? I know, for example, I've read travel accounts of uh, interwar uh, places like Klaipeda in Lithuania, where, uh, where even cities that large did not always have mm -hmm. a modern uh, sewage disposal system. So I'm just wondering, was that uh, unique to Volhynia or wasn't that generally commonplace in that part of the world? Thank you. 
Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so yes, I mean, this is this is really part of what I'm trying to do with the book is to think about the ways in which everything is relative to everything else. So, um, you know, a place like Volinia, they, they, they often in interwar Poland have these sort of, um, they'll list the different provinces and they'll have the different statistics. So when they have things like, you know, um, literacy rates or, you know, number of uh, paved to unpaved roads, the ratio there, um, or, the, or, you know, other ways in which they kind of measure in some tangible way what civilization meant the linear tends to be toward the bottom it's often not right at the bottom so the province to the north is called Polesia um, and that is often thought of as, as sort of worse than Volinia right so Volinia is sort of not right at the bottom but it tends to be toward the bottom and you know as I mentioned there's these sort of global civilizational hierarchies and Poland's trying to position itself there but you're absolutely right that within Poland itself there are also these hierarchies um, and these often, although not totally, go from west to east. So, so a place like Poznan, for instance, which is in Western Poland, had been under the rule of the German Empire prior to uh, 1914. That's a place where they have much higher literacy rates, paved streets, you know, um, you know the population is much more, um, is much denser there, um, you know, that the land is more agriculturally productive, all of that kind of stuff. And so part of what is going on here is that in addition to these global hierarchies, um, Poles are trying to position themselves um, on these internal hierarchies within the Polish state. And so one of the things that I emphasize um, in the book is that there is a whole mission that these, these people from Poznan um, launch into the, um, into the Eastern borderlands, sort of proving that, you know, that they, as people who had lived under the German Empire, you know, they may say, oh, it's great that we don't live under the German Empire anymore, but because we learned how to be civilized from the Germans, we are much more civilized than the people who lived in the Russian Empire, who lived under these worst conditions. So what we see during this period, and I think what your question really, really points towards, is that while we think of the interwar period as the integration of all of these areas that have been under separate empires into the Polish state, what is actually happening are that the Poles are emphasizing these imperial borders again by claiming that, as I said, people who lived under the Russian empire are less civilized than the Poles who lived under the German empire. And so they're kind of, they're using the imperial borders to make a case for their own importance as leaders in this new state. So absolutely, civilizational hierarchies very much exist within the state itself. Thank you. Now I will combine two questions actually that were dropped into the chat that are that are somewhat related. Uh, one from James Nelkin is about sources and he asks how available were the written and photographic sources considering the destruction of World War II and decades of communist control. And then uh, Michael Nussbaum asks if Poles were a relatively small minority in Volhynia why were the post-World War I boundaries drawn to place this province in Poland and not, for example, in Ukraine? Okay, um, so the, the question about sources, thank you. I love talking about sources. Um, so the sources are a combination um, of things that I found in Warsaw, um, particularly in the, the archive of new documents, which is the main modern archive in Warsaw. Um, and there, you know, they have they have a good collection from the interwar period um, there about this region. Um, but what I ended up doing after I did that work, I, I went back, um, you know, and I wrote my dissertation for a year. Um, and then I ended up going to Ukraine. And Ukraine actually have Western Ukraine. Um, and in their, their archives, they have these Polish sources from the interwar period that the Poles have never got hold of. And so it was kind of amazing in the age. I mean, this was, you know, 10 years ago or more, but you know, in the age of sort of digitization, they the Poles hadn't digitized these sources. So I had to go there, uh, which was great because it actually meant that I got to go to these places that I was writing about, which are now um, in Western Ukraine and to, to sort of walk around and to see, um, you know, to see these places and to get a sense of the scale and all, all that kind of stuff. Um, and th there's huge amounts of sources there. Um, you know, these are all of the, the really great sources actually were from there. So the, the sort of minutes of local meetings and the personal collections of some of the regionalists that I looked at. Um, what else was there? A lot of the public health reports were there. They, they'd never made it to Warsaw. Um, and so I guess, you know, the, the, it was kind of tricky. It was a little tricky getting there, and it, you know, it's not not always the easiest place to work. Um, but it was so it was really worth it because I got to to see all of these these collections and the photographic collections. Actually, the the um, Poles have done a great job of, of digitizing those. So many of those are available through the national um, arc, the national digital archive. So that 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 they're very readily available. 
Um, and in terms of why, well, I mean, this question of why did it end up as part of Poland if it wasn't demographically Polish, if it was Ukrainian, why didn't it end up, um, you know, part of Ukraine? And the answer, I mean, the answer lies, I think, both in um, in the fact that there was a war here, and that this is where the, the this is where when the armistice happened, this is where the border uh, was essentially drawn. I mean, it was changed slightly uh, with the Treaty of Riga in 1921, but this is you know this is the result of a of a war between these different groups and the Poles. You know, they won these territories and they they agreed with the um, with what was to become the Soviet Union that this is where the border would be. Um, and also, I think because you know the Ukrainians. Um, you know, they wouldn't. They did not have the kind of will that the, the Western world and Woodrow Wilson and the other uh, peacemakers in Paris just didn't have the same kind of um, goodwill, if you like, toward that group as they did toward um, the Poles. And there was this really clear sense that they they wanted the Poles to have a state. Um, of course, there were criticisms among those powers about the way that the Poles administered these regions, the ways in which they had a almost kind of imperial or colonial set of policies toward the Ukrainians. Um, but a lot of this just was was just the circumstances at the end of the war. Um, you know, that well, it wasn't because one claim on some kind of objective level was was better than the other. It was just, you know, as with many of these things, it was a combination of, of military conflict and then where the will uh, from the, the people who were really making decisions about the map of Eastern Europe, where that will was. Thank you. Um, a question from Andre Schlachter, please go ahead. Uh, yes, hi. Uh, thank you. Hi, Kat. Andre. Hi. Uh, so you mentioned in your talk that uh, for the local actors that you described, the uh, global concepts uh, into which you're trying to uh, um, integrate this history, global concepts such as civilization and backwardness, that for them, this meant something different than what it meant for people elsewhere. Mm -hmm. I was just hoping, uh, could you elaborate on that and uh, basically uh, answer the question, how is Volinia unique? Okay, yeah, that's great. Um, so maybe just to kind of give you an example of this, um, and Fran mentioned this at the beginning, and I didn't talk about it during the talk, but it would be a great place, I think, to talk about this idea. So, you know, that the idea of democracy means something very different here than it does in, in many of these other contexts. So we think, when we think about the story of the interwar period in Poland, we think about, you know, um, that, that, that Poland, you know, signed a minority treaty to protect the minorities. It has a, like a, a kind of liberal Western constitution um, in 1921. And that democracy was sort of imposed on Poland. Liberal Western democracy was imposed on Poland. And then of course, in 1926, there's a coup and, and it all collapses. And actually that's, I mean, that is that is a story that is an important story here um, but Poles have their own views about democracy in the borderlands like what does democracy mean here they don't think they're acting undemocratically but they have a different interpretation of what democracy means so one example of this is you know during these borderland wars the first chapter of the book looks at a group of Polish activists who go into the region and, one, and they, they keep talking about democracy they keep talking about like how important it is to bring democracy to the region but they're not talking about Western liberal democracy. They're not talking about rights as such. They're talking about a kind of emancipatory idea about Poles liberating other nations. And they're, you know, they want to create, for instance, these sort of councils that will have you know, some Jews on them and some Ukrainians on them and somehow to sort of create some kind. So there are different voices represented, mainly Polish voices, right? But they want to include these populations because they think that's very democratic. Um, but when people raise objections to, for instance, the, the way that this fledgling Polish state is behaving, the minutes of these meetings, which I went through really carefully trying to pass, like, what do they mean when they say democracy? They say, well, we, we are the only ones who can bring democracy to the region. So you need to stop complaining about the policies that we're bringing to the region, right? So it's, it's democracy, but it's, it's a kind of democracy on Polish terms only, right? It's, it's allowing people to have voices, but those voices sort of have to consent um, with the, the idea that the Polish state have here. So you have these kind of statements like, you know, in the Russian empire, you were subjects and we're making you citizens. And so part of that is actually going along with what we're doing because we are allowing you to become democratic citizens. So it's it, it, it's completely separate idea. I think it really emerges in, in the case of these activists from their own experiences in the Russian empire and the sort of leftist sort of socialist ideas that they that they come with about what democracy is. Similarly, Pilsudski, you know, he's very critical of democracy and so are the, in, in terms of the parliament in Warsaw and so are his um, allies in Volinia. 
Um, but they also worry about things looking undemocratic. So when they talk about things like, um, you know, having days of the year where everybody has to basically give their labor, um, you know, have this sort of ob obligatory labor that they would then give to the state, you know, in the newspapers, they say, well, this doesn't seem very democratic. But then they say, well, you know, is, it, is, is getting people to pay taxes democratic or is sending children to school democratic? Like we, the state can impose certain things on its citizens. But to me, what was really striking is, you know, these are articles from the early 1930s. I mean, there is no functioning democracy in the, in the sense of like Western liberal democracy in Poland at this time. And yet democracy is still on their minds. So that would just be one example of, a, of how a concept comes to mean something something different in this place. So the, the concepts are there, but I'm really interested in what they come to mean and how they serve these, these actors um, in this, on this local level. And in that sense, Bolinia is just a place to explore how in any place, the local means that the global concepts are refracted differently. So it's unique in, in one sense, but then it also, this technique that I'm trying to use, I think could be used in other places if someone was looking at a particular region. So I guess we will close our evening together and uh, want to thank you again, Catherine, for just a really provocative, rich talk. Uh, it was really, really fantastic. I want to thank uh, Ted Gerber, the faculty director at CRECA, and Jennifer Tischler, the associate director at CRECA, for suggesting that we uh, co-host this event. And I think, hi, Jennifer, thank you. Um, I think it's been a fantastic success and uh, that bodes well for, for future collaborations that uh, our EEI at Indiana and CRECA at Wisconsin might have. So thank you once more. And um, thanks to all the audience members and hope everyone enjoys your evening. Thank you very much, everybody. It's been really, I really enjoyed it. And thanks for your questions.